Years ago, I read a story about a family who saved up for several years in order to come to America. And when they had saved up enough money to purchase their, their tickets on the ocean liner, they also had saved up a little bit extra so they could buy cheese and crackers to eat on the voyage so they wouldn't starve. As they neared the coast of America, one of the other guests on the ship asked them why they had not been eating in the dining hall with everyone else. And the couple explained that they were poor and they had spent all of their money buying the tickets and they had been eating cheese and crackers. And the other passenger informed them that three large meals were included every day with the price of their ticket. And yet, there they had, on this entire journey, they had been eating cheese and crackers, rather than feasting on the, the riches that an ocean liner provides. In a lot of ways, I feel that's a, a sad illustration of the way many believers live today. Sadly, many believers scrape by on spiritual breadcrumbs when God's plan for those that He redeems are much greater than this. Now, there are some who honestly choose to live like spiritual paupers. God has entrusted us with much. He has given us much. He has blessed us much. But these people, though they say they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, through their actions, through their attitudes, they choose to miss out on what God has for them. For we know from Scripture that That through our actions, we can cause ourselves to miss out on much that God would do in us and through us and for us. And so these people, they choose to survive on the world's breadcrumbs instead of feasting on God's riches. And others live as spiritual paupers because they just don't know what God has planned for them. What God offers them. What is theirs in Christ Many times these folks live with deep doubts about their salvation. They have doubts about whether or not God truly wants to have a real relationship with them. They they doubt whether or not God will accept them. They doubt their ability to glorify and to honor God. And so they trudge through life, living far below the great things God has planned for them. But regardless of the reason, the result is the same. People who are followers of Jesus living far below what Jesus intends for their lives. They never really experienced the life and life more abundantly that Jesus said He came to give. Today we are starting a a new study through the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians we do learn much about the unsearchable riches of Christ. All that is ours. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. My prayer is that through this series we would not live as spiritual paupers. That we would not choose to feast on the world's breadcrumbs rather than living in the riches of Christ. And that we would know who we are and what God has planned and what God has done in us and through us and for us. So that we would live in all the fullness of God as we are intended to. Open your Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 1. 
page 895 in the Pew Bible, if you have that. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to look at the first six verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The title of the message this morning is The Riches of Redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are wonderful and amazing and awesome. You are far more worthy of our praise than our minds can comprehend. Far more worthy of our praise than our mouths could express. Father, today we, we gather as a people who are hungry for You. We desire You, Father. We want more of Your Spirit. We want more of Your grace. We want a, a greater understanding of Your Word and, and who we are in Christ and what we're meant to, to be because of what Christ has done for us. So Father, today, guard against any distractions that would keep us from hearing what You have for us in Your Word. Send Your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and hearts that would receive Your Word, that it would sink deep into our hearts and it would bring forth fruit for Your glory, fruit that would testify that we are Yours, that Jesus is Lord over our lives. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and let me speak what You've laid upon my heart. Help me not to be in the way at all. Father, guide me that all that I say would be led of Your Spirit. Help me to know what to, to add if anything should be added. Let me know what to take out if it should be taken out. Father, today our desire, our need is not to hear from me, but to hear from You. Holy Spirit, guide me as I speak. Guard me from error. Guard me from chasing rabbits. And help me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ Today, let me lift up Jesus that all people would be drawn to Him. Father, today you know the burdens in our hearts, the issues that we face. You know our spiritual condition. There are some here today that have never really trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Make that plain and draw them to Christ today. Maybe some here today that are sliding back in their relationship with you, their commitment to Christ. Deal with them about that today and bring them to a place where they would recommit themselves to Christ. Lord, there may be others here today that doubt their salvation. Lord, today speak, speak comfort to their hearts. Speak comfort into their souls and let them know that they are accepted in the Beloved. They are your child. Have your way and do what needs to be done in all of our lives. We ask in the mighty name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
You may be seated. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is one of the most practical letters that he writes. He doesn't really focus on any local issues. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he doesn't deal with local spiritual problems or local spiritual leadership issues or or any other controversy that was going on in Ephesus. Instead, what he does is he focuses on general issues faced by every believer in every church of every generation as they seek to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and be lights in a spiritually dark world. As time goes on, we'll get more into that, but Ephesus was a spiritually dark place. It was a place where there was much paganism, there was much mysticism, there was a lot of witchcraft type stuff. It was a deeply spiritually dark place and so Paul's letter It empowers them and it helps them to live as lights in that world. But since he doesn't deal with anything specific, it's very easy for us to take this and say, instead of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we could easily say this is Paul's letter to the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. For every issue that we talk about will speak to our lives. It will speak to our culture. It will speak to issues that we face. Now, Paul, when he writes letters, he typically breaks them up into two parts. The first part is is doctrine, and then the second part is the practical application of the doctrine that he's preached. Now, this doctrine in Ephesians is largely based upon the gospel. The first three chapters are almost entirely the gospel in one way or another. And only after he has laid that solid foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, does he then begin to get into, this is what you do. And the truth, the point that he's making is, we do what we do because of what God has done. Right? We, we don't launch into finding our spiritual gifts and serving in the community so that we can be accepted by God. No. We find our spiritual gifts and we launch into service in the community because we've been accepted by God. We don't labor and work for unity so that we can earn God's approval. No, we we labor and we work for unity because we've received God's approval. We don't do what we do to be saved. We don't rip off the old man and put on the new to be saved. No, because we've been saved. We rip off the old man and we put on the new. The gospel is the foundation for all that we do in our lives. And that is a huge point that Paul is making in this letter. He starts the letter as he always does. Identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And just one thing I want to mention is that he he addresses it to the saints in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, something we have to understand is those are the same people. Do not be confused that there are believers in Jesus, there are faithful in Jesus, and then there are saints in Jesus. There are no levels. There are believers in Jesus. And a believer in Jesus is also considered to be a faithful believer in Jesus. And a faithful believer in Jesus is also considered to be a saint in Jesus. 
There is no biblical distinction between saints and regular Christian. There is no biblical class of super Christians called saints. All believers are considered to be saints. Not because believers are wonderful and they have it all together. Believers are saints because they are connected to Jesus Christ by faith. And He has made them saints. So this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint of Jesus Christ. You are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Understand that about yourself. Don't say, well, I I wish I was better. I wish I was more. Or "I, I need all of these other people so I can be like them. No, you are complete in Christ. You are accepted in Christ. You are a saint in Christ. Know that about yourself. Paul wishes them grace and peace, which was a common greeting in the day. One would say, grace be unto you, and the response would be in peace unto you. Paul changes it to make it distinctly Christian by saying grace and peace from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. His point, while subtle, is great. There is only grace and there is only peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other source of grace. There is no other source of peace except from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that very, very brief introduction, Paul lays out a list of the riches that are ours in Christ. Blessings, riches that God our Father has planned to give to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And and that's really kind of the key as you look through here, because notice what it says. Blessed be God our Father, God, God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. To himself according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved who is Jesus Christ. All of the riches we're going to look at this morning, all of the things that Paul says are ours, they come only through Jesus Christ. The riches of redemption come only through those who believe in Jesus. We'll see this over and over in Ephesians. But everything rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. With Jesus there is life and peace and hope. Without Jesus, there is none of that. Everything rises on Jesus. So our key truth today is just that redemption through Christ makes us rich in Christ. Redemption through Christ makes us rich in Christ. And we don't have time this morning to get into all of the riches that are ours in Christ But in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, Paul lays out what I would call four categories of riches that are ours through Christ. And we could take hours and hours on each one, but we won't. 
First is we are blessed in Christ. Now, all all throughout here, I put the points in we. And I did that intentionally. The focus in Ephesus, in Ephesians, isn't so much on what I am, but what we are. Paul is writing to a church and that we all together are these things. Because Paul's intention, the Bible's intention, is not that I would say me and Jesus, we have our own thing. And I've got Jesus and I don't need the church. That was not what we find. Instead, it would be we are in Christ. We have riches. We together have all of these things. And we'll see that more as we get in further into Ephesians. So we are blessed in Christ. Verse 3, blessed be God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Now he praises God for the many blessings that God has bestowed upon us in Christ. And there are several important facts about these blessings. These blessings all come from God our Father. Right? They come from God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also our Father, we'll see in a minute. But everything comes from God. That's a key point in Ephesus and in, in the Bible. The Bible is clear that every good gift we have in our life, it comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. But this is kind of a picture of, some call it common grace. The picture is that God is good to all, so that all people will see who He is, and they will see that there is a good God who cares about them and that they would reach out for Him. But if there is any good thing that you have in your life, that is a gift from God. Do you have, were you raised in a good family? That is a gift from God. Do you have a good spouse? That is a gift from God. Do you have children that are a blessing to you? That is a gift from God. Were you raised in a place where you could go to church without fear of being blown up. That is a gift from God. Do you have an intellect where you can learn and read and understand things? That is a gift from God. Is there certain things you're good at that you can just do well? That is a gift from God. There is no good thing in your life that is not a gift from God. There is no good thing that will ever come into your life that is not a gift from God. We also see that these blessings are already ours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, has blessed us. It's past tense. We don't need to, to pray for God to give us these blessings, as they are already ours. Rather, what we need to do is understand the blessings that are ours and live as though they're true. We shouldn't live as poor, pitiful, miserable believers. We're not. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We are meant to live an abundant life through Jesus Christ. We don't have to pray for that to happen. It's ours. Believe it. Study it. Find out more and more of what it means. And then say it's true. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have all that I need in Christ. I am rich in Jesus. Believe it. Don't pray, oh God, pour out spiritual blessings on me. 
That's like holding your hand filled with donuts and saying, give me more donuts. No, you got them. Believe they're there. Enjoy them. We have these blessings already. Thirdly, these are spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now usually when we think about blessings, we think about physical, material things. And what we see here is that God has blessed us with spiritual things as well. Now this isn't to say that God doesn't give us physical or material blessings. Scripture and life teach that indeed God does bless us in physical, material, tangible sort of ways. However, physical or material blessings aren't the end-all, be-all of all that God does in us and through us and for us and all the ways that God blesses us. There are spiritual blessings, things we can't necessarily hold in our hands, but that are true nonetheless. You can't hold in your hand there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. And yet, it's true. That is a tremendous blessing that we have. You can't hold in your hand 24-hour access to the God of the universe. And yet, that's ours in Christ. You can't hold in your hand an eternal inheritance that is reserved in heaven, undefiled for us. And yet, it's ours. You can't hold in your hand the fact that every good deed that we do in the name of Jesus is eternally significant. And yet, it's true. There are so many things that we cannot hold in our hands, and yet they are God's great blessings on our lives. And then also, we have all spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All. When we trust in Jesus, and we are redeemed by the grace of God, we are given all spiritual blessings. Think about that. All spiritual blessings are yours. And the idea of having all spiritual blessings is that that one, that we are complete in Christ and that they are complete in us. In Christ, we have all that we need to live a rich spiritual life full of God's abundant spiritual blessings. Peter writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you and through the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. We don't have time To look at all that that passage teaches us. So take time this week. Study 2 Peter chapter 1 on your own. Read it over and over and over again. For our purposes today, I just want to highlight the underlying part. It's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's very similar to have blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And it means that we have everything we need 
for an abundant life. Not just that we have everything we need to reach heaven someday. Sure, certainly we have that. But we have everything we need to live an abundant life here, now, today, in our life. We have everything we need to live a life that is filled with love. God's love. Agape love. We have everything that we need to to live a life that is filled with joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have everything that we need to live a life that is filled with purpose, meaning, significance, satisfaction, hope, abundance, and more. We have everything we need for life in Christ. Think about that. I mean, of course, if you're you're paying attention to love, joy, peace, all of that is the fruit of the Spirit. Do you realize that you have the same ability to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life that, that Billy Graham had in his? He didn't have something you don't have. He didn't have a greater understand, greater access to the Holy Spirit. He didn't have more heavenly blessings. He didn't have more promises. He had what we have. The difference between someone like Billy Graham and those of us that may not live that way is he believed it. He understood that he had all that he needed and he said, this will be true of me. I will live in all the fullness of God. And he refused to accept anything else. We have everything we need for a spiritual life. But we also have everything we need for a life of godliness, Peter says. Now, when we're godly, we reflect God's character and God's nature in our life, in our values, in our priorities, in our attitudes, our actions, our reactions, our speech, and every other way. You see people that are, that are patient and long-suffering with difficult people. And you think, oh, I wish I could be like that. Oh, my friend, you can. You have everything you need to live that kind of a life. You see people who react to stressors with faith and hope in God. You say, oh, I wish I could act like that. You can. You have everything you need. Do you see people who are just so devoted to Jesus? You think, oh, I wish I was as devoted to Jesus as they were. You can be. You have everything they have to be just that devoted to Jesus. You see people who talk and their speech is grace-filled and loving and kind. You think, oh, I wish my speech was like that. It can be. You have everything you need to live that kind of a life. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. God hath given unto us all things that we need for a life of godliness and a thriving spiritual life. But these blessings only come through Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We receive all of this 
through Christ and, and only through Christ. Everything rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. In, in Christ, I have everything I need to live a life of godliness. In Christ, I have everything I need to have a thriving spiritual life and experience the abundant life that Jesus said He came to give. In Christ, I have everything I need so that the fruit of the Spirit would be the natural character of my life, not the exception of what would happen. Oh, how we need to know the life that God has redeemed us to live. It is not a dull joyless, miserable life. It is not a monastic life where we knuckle under with pain and misery and everything kind of stinks. But one day glory will have a cabin over there and it will all be better then. That is not the life that we have been redeemed to. Now I'm not saying we've been redeemed to an easy life. Don't misunderstand me. The Apostle Paul was redeemed to a very, very difficult life filled with suffering. And yet in a Roman prison, after being horrifically beat, he's singing and praising God at midnight. That's an amazing thing. You think I would I would love to have Paul's mindset. My friend, you can. We can. We've been redeemed. We have what we need to live. That way. We have been redeemed to a life of joy, a life of hope, a life of peace, a life of excitement, a life of purpose, a life of meaning, and a life of satisfaction. We've been redeemed to a life so rich in spiritual blessings. That the people of God can even have peace and joy in the midst of deep suffering and hardship. Paul said, suffering and yet always rejoicing. That is the life that we have been redeemed to. That is a part of the all spiritual blessings that are given to us in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We are also holy through Christ. In verse 4, Paul says that, that according as He, as God hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. I love this verse. We were chosen in Christ Before the foundation of the world. What a great phrase. What a beautiful picture. What a comforting thought. I mean, think about that for a second. Before the foundation of the world. Before God spoke a single thing into existence. He had a plan. And you and I. We were a part of that plan. Always. We were always. A part of God's plan. Now, again, this plan is centered on Jesus. He has chosen us in Christ. But we were chosen. I mean, this means that, that our redemption 
It was God's plan and God's idea. Everything about your salvation and mine was God's plan. Not yours, not mine. It was God who planned for the Son to come and die on the cross. Peter says that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So at this same time, before the foundation of the world, when we were planned, Jesus' death was a part of the plan. God planned for Jesus to die for your sins and mine. God planned on calling us to salvation through the gospel message. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you you remember that day when you heard the Spirit's call. Jesus saying, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That wasn't an accident. You didn't find a, a loophole in the system. That was God's plan. He he planned to call you on that day. He planned for you to be where you were so that you heard that message. He planned on it to touch your heart, to stir your spirit, to lead you to a place where you would believe in Him. God wants us to be with Him. He doesn't want us to be separated from Him in this life. He doesn't want us to live a... (coughs) He doesn't want us to live a life gripped by sin and shame and sorrow and death. He's chosen us. He plans for something. He he longs to redeem us from all of that. God's desire for our lives, it is far more than sin and shame and sorrow and death. God's plan is that we would be before Him, holy and without blame. In love. Oh, that's good, right? In love. Now, our temptation is to focus on the in love and ignore the holy and without blame. But if we do this, we overlook one of the essential riches of redemption. God doesn't save us from sin to leave us in sin. He loves us far too much for that. Instead of leaving us in sin, God saves us from sin. He begins to change us from the inside out. So that from the very core of our being, we would be holy. And could live without blame before Him in love. Now holy... The word holy or holiness is used more than 600 times in Scripture. And that's an emphasis, right? I mean, that's obviously an important concept. The word that is most often translated as holy in the Old Testament, it, it literally meant to cut or to separate. So to be holy means to be cut away or separated from what is unclean and sinful for the purpose Of being dedicated to God. Now that's the key thing. It wasn't just to cut something and separate it. It was to dedicate it to God. And it was that dedication to God. Is what made it holy. But the tabernacle. Was filled. With all of these items. 
And all of this furniture that was holy unto the Lord. But what made it holy? It wasn't the gold. It wasn't the silver. It wasn't the wood that was used. It wasn't created by holy hands and therefore it was sanctified and magically holy. What made it holy was that they built it and they said, this is God's. And we give it to God for His use according to His will and His purpose. And at that moment, it was holy. Think about when Moses met God at the burning bush. Take off your shoes for what? Holy ground. Why was the ground holy? Because God was there. And it was dedicated to God in that time. What makes us holy? Not that we square ourselves away. Not that we purge our lives completely of all sin. Not that we get our attitudes and everything completely, totally, 100% on the ball. But it's that we cut ourselves away from sin to the best of our abilities. And we say, oh God, I'm yours. I give myself wholly, completely to you. I take up my cross. I am a living sacrifice. My life is yours, God. Use me as you see fit to do what you want done. And then we're we're holy. Because we're cut away from what's unclean. And we're giving ourselves to God. We're meant to be holy, but also without blame. Without blame, it means to be free of sin or moral filth or defilement. God's plan isn't that we would be saved and then live how we want to and then somehow, someday, go to heaven when we die. He loves us too much for that. God's plan is that we would live in this life holy. Blameless, morally pure, and fully devoted to Him. We must understand that holiness, it is always God's plan for our lives. If you have been redeemed by the grace and the power of Almighty God, you never have to pray if holiness is God's will. It is. Every single time, in every single instance, In every single area of your life. Every single day. You were chosen. And you were called. And you were redeemed for that very purpose. To be holy. Now. I do want to say. As long as we're living in this life. We're not going to get that 100% right 100% of the time. I wish we could. I wish I could tell you, come pray a big prayer and you lay it all on the altar and you could get up entirely consecrated and you'd never again stray or wander in your mind or your attitude or your speech or your actions. Because if that was the case, we'd just have one big prayer meeting until everybody got through and got holy. It's just not the way that it works. The corruption in this world and the corruption of our own flesh, it ensures that we'll never be entirely, completely perfect. But this does not mean holiness is unimportant. This doesn't mean that we don't strive for holiness and strive to cut sin out of our lives and be more devoted and dedicated to God. It is a very sad fact that many people who profess faith in Jesus will make statements like, well, we'll never be 
holy and perfect in this life. So I'll just do what I want to do anyway. That mindset is completely foreign to Scripture. Nothing, nothing about the reality of our sinful nature makes our living in sin acceptable in God's sight. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Scripture clearly teaches holiness is an essential element to life. We are to be holy because He is holy. We are to strive for that and we should see progress in that. God planned this for us. This was His plan. And it was His plan, because this is important, because He loved us. Holiness is not meant to be a burden to be born. Holiness shouldn't be seen as the end of joy or pleasure. Holiness should be seen as a gift from God. A blessing from God that He gives us because God Loves us. You see, God knows full well the destruction that sin brings into our lives. God knows that the wages of sin is death. That you reap what you sow. God knows that sin destroys, defiles, and separates us from Him. And that's just not what God wants for us. God does not want us to be destroyed. God does not want us to reap from our flesh. God does not want us to suffer the wages of sin, which is death. God wants us to live in close communion with Him in this life. And then rejoice with Him in all of eternity. And so He planned something better than us to live sinful, sin-filled lives. He planned, He determined that we should be holy. He chose us so that we could be holy and blameless. That we could live before Him and walk in His love. Holiness is a part of the riches of redemption that we receive through Jesus Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We are holy through Christ. We are adopted because of Christ. In verse 5 it says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Predestinated, as it's used in Scripture, primarily refers to what God has planned to do, or what God has planned and then does for those that He redeemed. Before the foundation of the world, God planned to do certain things for those He redeemed. In this passage, what God planned to do is to adopt us as His children. So God not only forgives our sin, but He brings us into His family to make us His children. I don't have time this morning to get into all that that means and the ways that it speaks to me. But you have got to think about The fact the Bible says that in our sinful nature we were alienated and enemies from God. 
through Christ's death for us, for traitors, God not only forgave our sin, but He adopted us as His children. Think about that. We were His enemies. And He didn't just say, well, I'll, okay, I'll forgive you from here on out, try to do better. He forgave our sin. He blotted out the handwriting that was against us. And then He said, I love you. And I know what you did. But you're mine. You're now my son. You're now my daughter. All of your rebellion, all of your sin, it's, it's forgotten. It's gone. You're mine now. And I love you as a father loves his son or a father loves his daughter. If you have believed upon Jesus Christ for your salvation right now, at this moment, you are a child of God. You don't work to be adopted. You don't earn it. You just, you just are. Because of Jesus and what He has done. This is a part of the reason that Jesus came. To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, if a son, an heir of God. Through Christ. Through Christ. Always through Christ. Jesus came to redeem us so that we could be sons and daughters of Almighty God. And in this adoption process, we are given the Spirit of God who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. If you've been in church much, you know the term Abba. It's an Aramaic term meant Papa or Daddy. It was one of the first words that a child learned. It was a term of respect and affection. But it also implied a high degree of intimacy with the person that you called that to. And because of that, the Jewish people would never refer to God as their personal Abba. He was the, the father of their nation, but never their personal father. Certainly not Abba father. But when Jesus was praying in the garden, he used this term to refer to his father. Paul then took this precedent. And he used it several times to show our relationship with God. There's a lot this teaches us about our relationship with God. Our relationship with God isn't meant to be based on a list of do's and don'ts that we keep in order to appease God so He doesn't break our legs or burn our house down. You know, there's a lot of people, professing believers, and their life is based on that. They've got to do enough to keep God from being mad at them. God is just perpetually angry and on the verge of lowering the boom. They better go to church. Because if they don't go to church enough during the week, God's going to get them. They better tithe. If they don't tithe enough, God's going to get them. They better do this enough because if they don't do that, God's going to get them. And they're afraid if they were to do that because whew, God might get them. What a miserable, miserable, sad existence. What if your relationship with your spouse was like that? I better take out the trash or she's going to leave me. I, I, better, I better cook the right meal or she's going to go. Or if I don't make the bed, he's going to leave me today, this time, that's it. Kind of, would that be a healthy marriage? Why would we think that would be a healthy relationship with God? 
Dear friend, if if that's your idea of your relationship with God, there's good news. You're his child. He has adopted you through Christ and you're his. Our relationship with God isn't supposed to be where we see God as a great cosmic genie who lives to grant our every wish. Sadly, there are many, and this is their view of God. They don't really love God, not in the sense of, I just love God. They kind of love what God might can do for them. They love that God can clean up their messes and they love that God can fix the things that they've done wrong and they they love that if they mess up their marriage that God might can fix it. But loving God, God's job, they put in a quarter and they pray a prayer. God's job is to send down a miracle. When God doesn't, well, I'm real disappointed in God. He didn't really come through. I did my part. I prayed the prayer. Again, what if your marriage was like that? What if your kids, mom and dad, what if your kids treated you like that? How would would that be? What a miserable relationship with God that would be. There's more. Much more. Our relationship with God isn't meant to be one where we nominally acknowledge His existence, but don't really take Him too seriously. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a God somewhere. I'm good with the big man upstairs, but... I mean, you don't want to get carried away with that that stuff. No, I mean, He only died on the cross for your sins and forgave you and spared you from hell despite the fact you deserved it. You You wouldn't want to get carried away with nothing like that. Sadly, some people don't take God very seriously at all. Again, what, what, if your, what if your spouse didn't take your marriage vows seriously? I love my wife, but I'm still going to sleep with every other woman that I think's hot. Is that going to be okay? Is that going to be acceptable? Well, I love my parents, and I, I really respect them. I just think they're the stupidest people on earth, and so I'm going to tell everybody I know how stupid and ignorant my dumb parents are. Is that going to be okay? Why would we do that with God? Why would we expect that God would be okay with that? Our relationship with God is meant to be that of a father and a child. And that's his idea. I mean, that's the kind of relationship that God longs to have with all of us. He wants this kind of relationship with us so much that he sent Jesus To die a horrific death on a cross. To pay the penalty that our sins had earned so that He could forgive us for what we had done against Him. And then adopt us as His very own children. But why? Why did God do that? Look at the very last of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of His will. According to the good pleasure of His will basically means because it made Him happy. How amazing is that? God received pleasure from your redemption and mine. At one time, we lived in rebellion against God. We did not care about His will or His want for our lives. 
we thumbed our nose at God and we did what we wanted to do. And God not only chose us and saved us and forgave us, gave us a new way to live our lives. He adopted us as his children and every aspect of what he did for us made him happy. There was nothing outside of God that could have forced him to do it. He did it according to the good pleasure of his will. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ that has been adopted, your adoption into the family of God made God happy. Your salvation, your redemption made God happy. When you prioritize God and you live for Him, that makes God happy. He looks down and He says, Look at my kid. Look at my son. Look at my daughter. I love them. I'm so happy that they're mine. You ever think about that with God? That God's happy with you? He's happy you're His. Man, that's amazing. The adoption is part of the riches we receive when we're redeemed through Christ. And then finally, we're accepted as a result of Christ. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Two parts in this and we'll, we'll close. God is glorified because of the grace He's given us. I think there's two pictures that we should see in this. I think on the one hand there is God is glorified by others when they see what He has done in us. When people say, look at that, good grief. Only God could have done that. I've joked before, but it was a true story. One of my cousins goes to a church that one of my teachers in high school pastors. And one day my cousin went up to him and said, do you know, do you remember a student you had named Stacy Ross? And he said, good grief, yeah, who could forget Stacy Ross? And he said, what is Stacy? Or she said, why? She said, because Stacy's my cousin. He said, really, what, what's he up to today? He's a, he's a pastor. He pastors a free will Baptist church in the panhandle. Kid you not, this is his response. I'm going to have to think about that for a little while. And he turned around and he walked away. What God has done in me, people who knew me then are like, wow, God must be pretty big and awesome if he can do that in Stacy's life. God is glorified when they see us. When the world sees the change that God has made, they're just like, well, I mean, I don't believe yet, but that must be real. That, that's something. At the same time, to the praise of the glory of His grace also is that we recognize what God has done in us and through us and for us, and we give Him the glory. Because again, I look at me, 
And I know me. I mean, I'm. There's just no way. I can do what I do. I'm just not good enough. I'm not able. And so when I. To know what I do, to know what God has allowed me to do these 17 years as pastor of this church, I think, wow, only God could have brought me to the panhandle of Oklahoma and made me a preacher. Because there was never a moment in my life before God did all that that I wanted. I didn't, I never even heard of God. I had no plan to be a preacher. I was going to be a soldier till I died. And God was like, I have something different for you. So when I look at my life and what I have and what's been done, I don't say I'm awesome because I know me. I say, wow, God's awesome. When we look at our lives, we ought to be able to say God's awesome. I mean, look at what I look at what I have. Look at what's been done in me. God, God is amazing that we would praise the glory of God's grace for his work in our life. And then that same praise, that same grace makes us accepted in the beloved. What a wonderful phrase. By the grace of God, I am accepted in the beloved. I was thinking about that this week. I'm not accepted on the merits of Stacy Ross. I'm not accepted on the merits of being an American. I'm not accepted on the merits of being a free will Baptist. I'm not accepted on the merits of being baptized. I'm not accepted on the merit on the basis of any merits that I can imagine or muster or give. I'm accepted by the grace of God in the beloved in Christ. That's why we praise him for the glory of his grace. His His grace has made us accepted in God's sight. His grace has redeemed us. His grace has caused us to be adopted. His grace has given us all spiritual blessings. It's all of grace. It's none of merit. Not mine. Not yours. You have no merit before God outside of the beloved. That's it. Now, I guess this is a two-edged sword. Because on the one hand, that's convicting, right? I mean, we like to say, we did it. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. And yet, we can't. We've done nothing. We've accomplished nothing. God did it. But at the same time, isn't that freeing? Because if it's based upon my merits, how am I going to know if I'm good enough? How will I know if I preached well enough for God to be pleased and accepted? How do I know if I'm holy enough? How do I know if I've done enough and and resisted enough? How how will I ever know if if I'm there because of my merits? How will I ever really enjoy God? If he's just given me what I earn. I'm free in Christ. To serve to the best of my abilities. And when I fail. And I blow it. Guess what? 
I'm still accepted in the Beloved. I didn't lose my merit all of a sudden and God's kicking me out. When what I thought was a good idea wasn't a good idea, guess what? I'm still accepted in the Beloved. How, how free am I to live, to try, to do whatever I think God would have me to do? And if I fail, yes, it may be embarrassing to me, but guess what? I'm still accepted in the Beloved. I'm not earning it. I'm not being good enough. I am good enough in Christ and I don't have to earn it ever, ever. How freeing is that? That's what we're supposed to have. That's the freedom we're meant to have in Christ. This motivates me to worship God. I cannot tell you how freeing it is to know that my acceptance, my salvation, it is not based upon my performance. Because I know me. And my performance isn't up to par an awful lot of the time. And if I was saved by the merits of Stacy Ross, oh, what a fearful existence I would live. Being saved on the merits of Jesus Christ, I'm free. Do I sin? I don't just make mistakes, friends. I, I sin. Your pastor sins. And in that time, guess what? I'm accepted in the Beloved. And rather than running from God because He's about to break my leg, I run to Him. And I say, Oh, Father, I'm so sorry. Oh, I know I shouldn't have done it. I'm sorry. It is all my fault. And I don't find a lecture on how stupid I am. I don't find a lecture on how hot hell is and I really ought to get to go there. I find the loving arms of my Heavenly Father who has accepted me in the Beloved and says, I forgive you. Let's go and try to do better next time. Come on, I'll go with you. That's the relationship we have. That's the freedom we have. This is what, this is part of the riches that we have in the redemption of Christ that is available to every person today. If you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, this is what God wants to give you. This is what God wants to do in you and through you and for you. He wants to give you every spiritual blessing. He wants, you, he wants to make you holy. He wants to adopt you as His son or His daughter. And He wants you to rest in Christ's acceptance and not try to earn it yourself. But you do have to come to Jesus for this. You have to acknowledge your sin and accept all responsibility for it. It's not because of how you were raised. It's not what your parents did. It's your sin. Your fault. You have to accept that you cannot save yourself. That your only merit before God, it will be what Christ has done. Not me and God are going to work it out. Not I'm going to turn over a new leaf and be good enough. But I'm going to come to God. And in God, in Christ, I find it all. And if Christ isn't enough, then I'm not going to make it. Because I have nothing of my own to add. You've got to believe Jesus. That He died on the cross for your sins. Not just sin in general. 
your sin. That your sin was so serious that Jesus died a horrible death because of it. You have to believe that He rose from the dead. And then you have to call on Him to save you. You must call on Jesus. That is the step. That is all you do. The only step we take in salvation is really to reach out and open our hands to God and say, I believe. Please, take this sin off of me and put Your grace in that spot. Save me, Father. Save me through Jesus, I believe. And in that moment of surrender, that moment of lifting up our hands, God redeems us. And He blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And He makes it so that we can be holy without blame before Him in love. He adopts us as His son or His daughter. All of this brings Him great glory and great pleasure. And we are forever accepted in the Beloved from that moment on. I want you to bow your head and just close your eyes.